Uh, for those of you that don't know me or uh, are joining us online, I'm Jonathan Miller, one of the two co-lead pastors here at Mosaic Birmingham. Kyle and his family is camping at the, this weekend, and so they're enjoying some time away. But I lead alongside of Kyle, who is normally up here doing stuff with us, but Drew Duvall was leading worship for us this morning, another one of our elders here. Um, you may not know this, uh, if you've been around Mosaic at all for any kind of time, but we have a red tablecloth behind us. This is what I jokingly call our liturgy table, and it may mean nothing to any of you, but it means something to a few of us, uh, and so we continue to do it. But it's red this morning because we are on Pentecost, or in, it's Pentecost Sunday. It's not a season, it's one day, and this ends our time in Eastertide. If you've been around these last few weeks, you know we've reinforced and talked about that Easter was meant to be more than a Sunday. Resurrection Sunday starts our Easter season, and we sit in that, and we celebrate. And now we find ourselves at Pentecost, which is the conclusion of Easter. And with Pentecost now, we'll go into ordinary time. And that is the majority of the time in the church calendar. If you're familiar with this language, it's called the lectionary. And, and there is this moment and this space where we enter into ordinary time, and this takes up the majority of it. And that's the, because that's the life of a believer and of a Christian, is the majority of our life is ordinary. It's mundane in a lot of ways. It's straight, and it's narrow, and it seems like it may never end. And so that's the season we're going into. But today is Pentecost, and we call this day Pentecost for reasons that many of you are familiar with. It's a word out of the New Testament one that you uh, have probably read before. And you've probably heard this as well, especially if you have been at Mosaic. Uh, this has been, uh, Kyle and I were talking about it, I think like six or seven years now that we've really focused and made sure that we've like made this day something special here at Mosaic. But it's a word that means 50 days. Uh, but it comes from a Jewish festival. It is not a, a necessarily uniquely Christian idea or a New Testament one. But it is a Jewish word, Shavuot. It's a festival meaning the festival of weeks. That word literally means weeks. And it was part of these different offerings that the Jewish people were commanded or, or invited into to participate in that were the first fruits. There were these festivals where they would have their harvest or, or their work or the different things. And whatever it was that you produced, whatever you had, Whatever you cultivated or created, you were to take the first of that and give it to the Lord and offer it to him as a recognition that all good things and all that you have and all that you're able to do and partake in comes from him and his kindness and his goodness to you. And so this is what this festival was, this festival of weeks, this first fruits festival. And it's one that is specifically tied to the idea of agriculture. Is specifically more so one of the growing of wheat. And it was a, a festival around the time of the wheat harvest. And so this is what would happen in the Jewish uh, culture. Ancient Near East Hebrews celebrating. They would take the time and celebrate Passover. And then on the first day after Passover, they would begin counting. And they counted out loud every day together. Much in the same way that we would in anticipation of Christmas or something like this as families... In their homes, they would gather together, and for seven weeks, they would count each day. And there, and there were prayers and moments that went around this. And they would count for this. And then on the first day after the seventh day, so seven weeks plus one, 49, 50, 
they would then do a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So there are only three festivals in the Hebrew tradition that were pilgrimage festivals, and this is one of them. And so this would mean that shortly after Passover, which is another one where they would find their way into Jerusalem, they would go home, they would count for 49 days, and they would come back to the to Jerusalem and they would celebrate this festival and they would bring the first of the wheat harvest this was around the time the wheat harvest would come in for them and what they were doing and what they were celebrating in this agricultural society in this like tradition of following along with what was being planted and harvested and what was being reaped and sowed was they were acknowledging that many times and if you have come from farming communities uh, believe it or not, uh, despite the way I dress and talk and my interests that I have, I do come from a farming community. I if you go back there, you're like, there's no way you came from this place whatsoever. Um, I did drive a four-wheel drive truck that had an off-road package and pipes, and it sounded great. It was beautiful, and then I would get out in skinny jeans and long hair, and people would be like, wait a minute, who is this guy? Uh, but So I'm coming from a farming community. You know this, that the, there is this thing that the community, the livelihood of the people, my uncles and aunts were farmers, and they would know that like the, there's this waiting, that you don't know what's going to happen. In some sense, you have to trust, and you have to kind of say, okay, like we did all that we can do. If you have a backyard garden, or maybe scale it down to just some herbs, and you know that there's a moment where, like, there's only so much you can do. And usually most of us don't do enough, and that's why everything dies. And it's not nature's fault, it's ours. But if you do everything right, even when you do things just like you're supposed to, inevitably things will happen. Seasons change. Moments come. And things don't turn out the way they're supposed to. The crops fail. There's bugs. There's pestilence. There's drought. There's miscalculation, there's weekends that you're gone and sickness that comes and you're unable to tend to the things the way that you're supposed to tend to them. And it doesn't produce the results that you want or, or you just don't know. There's, you're open-handed and you're kind of trusting. And so this, all of this is saying the people of God, they were farming people, agricultural people. And they would come on this festival and they would recognize that God was good to provide to them even when it felt like he maybe wouldn't. That they would recognize that God was always going to be faithful to complete the work which he has begun. And they use that agricultural metaphor to see that. That you plant the seed and though you cannot see the action, though you cannot see what's taking place, something is growing and maturing and it comes into fruition. And so they would celebrate this festival of acknowledging God's faithfulness to the people of God. And that though you cannot always see it or feel it or, or maybe like tangibly experience it, God is who he says he is and they would trust that he would deliver as he promised. And so then they would come and they would celebrate this. Another thing that kind of formed around this beyond the agricultural metaphor and the specific tie to the celebration of giving of the first fruits of the wheat harvest there in Jerusalem together. And there's lots of things about that and around that that are really cool about how that brought people together and they celebrated and it provided for people. But there's a, in the rabbinic tradition around that as well, around the time of Jesus and especially thereafter, uh, once the people, uh, once the Jewish people became less agricultural and uh, modernized in some way, they started tying it as well as to the tradition of kind of acknowledging when 
the people of God received the law in the desert. So there's the mass exodus, which is a quick plug for our summer series. Stick around the next 11 weeks. We're going to be in exodus because, and I will say this, and you'll hear this a lot the next 11 weeks. Uh, There are a ton of stories and traditions and rhythms in the people of God in the Old Testament that have their roots and their origins in the Exodus story. Like the Exodus story is a, a fundamental and monumental moment. And in a lot of ways, we stand in that, in a new Exodus, with Jesus being a newer and better Moses. And, and you're going to hear that so many times in the next 11 weeks, you're going to be sick of it. But what we know and what we see is that they, they recognize that there was this Exodus out of Egypt. They find themselves in the desert and based off of kind of Orthodox Jewish tradition, they think it was sometime around 50 days afterwards that the moment at Sinai happened. And they come to the mountain, and in their wandering, and they're being lost. And by this point, if you know the story, and we'll get into it, they're ready to go back. And they receive the word of God. And this is what this festival started to represent and be seen as. And it's in this moment and on this festival that we know from the story in Acts 2 that Jesus' disciples are in Jerusalem. And this is why they're all there. And if you've read Acts 2 and are familiar with it, you're probably more familiar with Pentecost in that regard, with that day and that moment. This is why there's all these people that speak these like slightly different languages. And just to explain that for a second, this is kind of cool, I think. It, this is their home languages, like their tribal kind of like familial languages. And, and so most of the people that were the people of God would have been able to speak uh, Hebrew or Aramaic at this time. Some of them would have been able to speak Greek, but all of them would have had their own kind of forms of dialects. And so think here in the United States, regional, we can talk about things, you know, if you know someone from Minnesota and they start talking about a toboggan, you have to ask, are you talking about a sled or a hat? Like, which one is it? I don't know if you're familiar with this. I'm from Amish country, so when you guys talk about buggies, I picture a horse (laughs) pulling a thing and you're like, there was a buggy in the parking lot. And I'm like, there's Amish people here? And you're like, oh, you meant a shopping cart. That's a shopping cart for everyone that's concerned. I will not, I've picked up y'all, but I will not call that thing a buggy. It is a shopping cart. A buggy is pulled by a horse, and we stole them and put them in my high school for a senior prank. So, anyways, there's these regional dialects, and so it's their home languages. And this is the moment in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit descends and comes like wind and fire. They're able to speak to all of these people in their home language, in their heart languages, that they could understand. And they say, like, how can these people speak all this? This is why all those people are there, because they've come to celebrate this Jewish festival. This means that our disciples and the people following Jesus are still rather Jewish, right? It's a big point that we tried to make throughout Galatians, that they're still very Jewish. And they're celebrating these festivals, but they're not just out celebrating it in the kind of way that they typically would have, because they were part of this weird sect that was not particularly look highly upon because the one that was their leader had just been murdered on a cross in a government execution and they're kind of now trying to figure out where that man went because the grave's empty and they're being accused of robbing graves and doing all these things and so they're in hiding but yet they still were so compelled by the rhythms of what they've been called to that they find themselves in Jerusalem to celebrate this this festival And so here they are, and they're celebrating it, and the Holy Spirit comes. And so this is our more like modern day as Christians. This is where we get the Christian holiday that we're observing today of Pentecost. It's from this moment that happens in Acts 2. And so what we're celebrating is that the giving and the coming of the Holy Spirit. 
And so we hear this, and, and we know that this is what it means, and this is why we have this. But I think that that doesn't necessarily, like, even though we know this narrative, we, we're familiar with this story, well, like, I guess the question that I think may be raised or, or easily begged is why Pentecost? Think about this for a second. In the church calendar, we have all of these different holidays that we mark and celebrate outside of ordinary time. This big, long stretch of ordinary time. And if we were super high church, uh, we would have saints days and all these other things that uh, Mosaic doesn't really participate in. But as a community now, for several years, we've been following the big highlights of the church calendar. The church year starts with Advent, which is the anticipation and the coming of Jesus Christ. Then we celebrate Christmas, which is Christmas. No explanation needed. Then we move into Epiphany. Epiphany is this moment where we recognize that, that there's this thing that happened in the world where Gentiles, specifically the wise men in the Christmas narrative, recognize this Jewish man as king over creation and Messiah. The next thing we move or find ourselves uh, partaking in and participating in in the church calendar is Lent, which is the anticipation of Easter. Then it's Easter, and then we have Ascension, which is the moment where we celebrate 40 days after Christ's resurrection and acknowledge this was 10 days ago for those of you keeping score at home last Thursday. And oftentimes at Mosaic, we'll celebrate what they call Ascension Sunday, which is the Sunday after Ascension. We didn't do that this year. We were finishing Galatians. This is Jesus ascending into heaven. Everything on the major highlight road of the lectionary and the liturgical calendar are these moments that are specifically tied to the narrative of the life and the man of Jesus Christ. And yet here we are celebrating Pentecost, which is the one thing on that kind of trajectory that isn't directly tied. And I think we kind of have to ask why. Why for 2,000 years have those that have taken it upon themselves to call themselves followers of Jesus and to give themselves to the way and the life of the resurrection and hope of Jesus Christ, have they seen fit every year to mark this story in Acts 2 and kind of celebrate what it means and what this story is and what happened? Because there's lots of amazing stories in the New Testament. And yet Acts 2 is the only one that gets its own kind of celebration and holiday in the Christian tradition. And I think we have to ask ourselves why. And I think we have to kind of begin to see that this matters with everything that we've been talking about through Galatians. And as we've been kind of like diving into to, and reiterating over and over again that what we are tasked with as those that would want to apprentice under the way of Jesus is we are tasked with living a life that is true of the resurrection, right? We've said this again and again in Galatians. You have to live a life as a believer that is necessitated by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, or there is something about your life that is functioning in a way that is not truly Christian. If you can operate and function without that, and I think that we all rightfully would hear that and think throughout this last seven weeks, as we've attempted to celebrate for seven weeks, after lamenting for six weeks, I think you would be right to kind of feel at tension and at odds and a little bit exhausted and exacerbated and asking yourself, how is this possible? How can I actually give myself to the life and resurrection of Jesus and that way of living when so much is going on in and around me? And I think that the church's collective answer for 2,000 years has been that it's only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And I would contend with you this morning, in our 21st century intellectual and educated minds, where most of us in this room don't experience much hardship until like well into adulthood, and even then, much of the hardship that we experience, though as real and necessary as it is for you to process and to deal with, it pales in comparison to the hardship and grief and difficulties that so many around the world suffer from. And that is not to, dimin like, to diminish or minimize your grief and your suffering. It is just to recognize that we live comfortable lives and that for most of us, again, not all of us, there are many of you in this room that have experienced very real trauma and grief. And I want to give space to that. And I'm like, if, if you hear me say that, to know, like, I, I know that about your stories. But for me, like, I've had difficulties. I've had griefs. Don't get me wrong. I've been to funerals. I've had to go through therapy like everybody else should. If you haven't, just a little plug there. Go do it. We all need it. But the reality of it is, is like, I didn't start dealing and addressing my anger issues until I was in my 30s and realizing that there was like a lot of things going on deep with inside me. Because for the most part, minus a few twists and turns in 2009 and a financial crisis that set me on a whole new path that the Lord used to bring beauty out of ashes, my life has gone pretty much the way I've wanted it to. Not perfectly. I had heartbreak and breakups. I thought things were going to happen that didn't happen. I never thought in a million years I would live in Birmingham, Alabama. Like It's not the thing that I'd planned and dreamt of, but it's pretty much worked out. I'm educated. I'm healthy. I have a wife. I have kids. Some of you lament and grieve those things. You long to be married. You long to have kids. I get that. But even then, like much of what we have, we have medicine. Like Our lives are well taken care of. And honestly, we can control and ordain a lot of, or at least we think we can, what happens. I think that's the juxtaposition and the difficulty of the last two years of COVID. Collectively as a nation, we've kind of went, oh crap, we can't control our whole lives despite the advancements in technology and in healthcare. There was this thing that happened that the whole nation kind of collectively went like, wait a minute, maybe we're not in control of everything. Maybe we can't just perfectly plan and control and guide life in the directions that we think it should also perfectly work out and partake in. And so we're left then, I think, with a lack of an understanding and pursuit of the Holy Spirit in our Christian lives. Because we think we can control everything. We think we have it figured out. We think we're kind of the ones that has like our nose on the ball. And we're taught, a lot of us in this room being millennials, that that was what we, we could be whatever we wanted to be. We could do whatever we wanted to do. We just had to work hard enough, take advantage of the opportunities before us, put our nose to the grindstone, hustle culture, like you can make it happen. And so we ignore this vital part of the Holy Spirit and the call to being this like, character-filled life of following Jesus in this way of death and resurrection because we choose a life and oftentimes a side note here a theology that perfectly matches up with what I want to believe and think and feel and do and so I just justify it all to do it the way I want to do it and so we have no need for the Holy Spirit not to mention the baggage and the difficulty that goes on with uh, explaining the Holy Spirit 
you can talk to someone, especially like someone that's very open-minded to different religions and kind of wants to live in this agnostic universalism. Like there's all a higher power, the elephant analogy, if you've ever heard this. Like we're all just touching different parts of the elephant. And like Jesus is really cool to them. God the Father is a divine being and like most people will buy into some aspect of the divine and all of this. But you like start talking about the Holy Spirit, like that's really what starts to differentiate Christianity and where that ability to share in this like kind of universal perspective of religions in that way starts to break down a little bit. You start to disagree a little bit because the, that is tied to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And as we talked on Easter, if you're going to believe in a literal resurrection of Jesus, like there's some things there where you start to get some looks and it gets a little difficult. And so there's baggage there. And then there's another set of baggage for a lot of us in regard to the Holy Spirit. This is my experience. Uh, my home is a theological home where I was raised was one of the charismata. Like I, I was raised in charismatic settings. I was connected to church plants and, and different things and conferences and spaces where the pursuit of the gifts of the Spirit was on the forefront at all times. And oftentimes in those settings, we see that pursuit and that desire for this Holy Spirit in that kind of way give way over and above like the pursuit of character and a disciplined life and following Jesus. And we see abuse of that. We see abuse of the pursuit. We see abuse of the gifts themselves. And gifting becomes all the focus. Manifestations becomes all the focus. And so that gets weird for a lot of us. Whether you are in those circles or watching from the outside, you begin to kind of go, I don't know. And so for all of us, Jesus and the Father are pretty easy for us to wrap our minds around. We've all in here, we we have fathers. Uh, Some of you probably didn't necessarily have dads, but you had a father. You had someone that fathered you, biologically speaking. We can give concepts to that. Jesus is a person, he's supposed to be our friend, he's a human, he's a, a teacher, a story, a moralist, a philosopher, whatever of these other things. We can wrap our minds around Jesus. But we really struggle with understanding the Holy Spirit. And in so doing then, I think we really lack in what makes us unique as the people of God. I think this Holy Spirit coming and filling us and indwelling in us causes a lot of the problems we have with Christianity. I think Christianity is supposed to be fulfilling and wild and adventurous and enjoyable and and find peace and steadiness and hope. And hear me out, that does not mean it's comfort and ease and perfect and idyllic and happy. This is joy. This is calm when things aren't supposed to be. And we miss on that, and there's a contradiction in our lives so often because of the lack of reliance and understanding of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our communities. We have to give ourselves to that pursuit. So this is what I want to do quickly to touch to the passage that was actually read this morning and not just talk about Pentecost and Act 2 and a vague understanding of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to walk through John 14 And as I do so, I want to try to answer a few questions, and at the end I'll sort of wrap up by putting these questions on the nose. Who and what is the Holy Spirit? What is the work of the Holy Spirit? And what is the mission of the Holy Spirit? And we're going to do this briefly and cursory, because you can't do this all in one sermon, especially when you've already used up 22 minutes and 26 seconds. So... 
the context of our passage in John specifically is one where Jesus is preaching these comfort sermons to his disciples after they had just celebrated the Last Supper, which was the Passover feast. They've celebrated it. Jesus is turning to them, and his face has long been set to Jerusalem. It's been set on the cross, and at this point, the disciples, I think, are starting to get it, and there's anxiety and there's fear. And so Jesus gives probably his most kind and comforting sermon in John's gospel and all of the scriptures. If you need encouragement and you need your soul to be nourished, read John 14 through 16. Like, just let Jesus' words speak to you. It is a comforting sermon. And so he's saying that it's time for him to leave and move on. And I think his disciples get like, oh, he's serious. Like, he's actually leaving now. And they're nervous. And so he gives them this comfort. And he's promising them that in his leaving, that there's actually a coming that in his going, there's actually a coming, and that it's actually better for them. Because what he's saying is that he's going and leaving to the Father in whom all things are present and available. So in that, there is a way and a traffic in which what is going to happen is that Jesus is now going to become more available and more accessible to all of creation than he will be in human form. So historical human Jesus will now all of a sudden be able to be accessed and available in a way that was not possible in one man no more boat sermons just so that enough people can hear it's going to be present and available to all of them and so this happens because this is the way it has to be and the disciples that they want questions and so they're saying like well if you're going to the father philip asks, well how do we know who the father is and jesus responds well how long have i been with you do you not get it yet that I am perfectly in the Father, and the Father is perfectly in me. And if you can't trust me and my words on that, despite the last few years we've spent together, at least trust that you believe that on the works that you have seen. I think we are tempted here to think that what Jesus is talking about is the, the miraculous things he's done all throughout Scripture, and that is part of it. But I think part of what Philip is asking here and what John is wanting to counteract I think John or Philip in John's gospel is asking for a miraculous manifestation and revelation of who God is in this kind of wild and big way. And I think he's pushing back on the need of what some of the people around this time that John's writing the gospel would have been like longing for like this mystical experience that set people in Christianity apart. Hear me out. Again, I believe in mystical experiences. I, I believe that there are transcendent experiences where you encounter things that you can't explain, that take us out of ourselves. I've seen them with my own eyes. We can talk later. But there is a trend, even in our time and in then, that like we begin to hyper-focus on that. And John is saying, through this interaction between Jesus and Philip, that I think like that's not the point, is this like manifestation, transcendent, mystic, Theophany, where God is revealed in this like kind of wild and uh, outside of the normative way. What Jesus is responding to him is, is like, have you not seen my life and what it evidences? Have you not experienced the work of who the Father is in and through me? And he's setting them up to say that that then will be your call. That is now what you are challenged to do. In the same way that there is this traffic and overlap between the Father and the Son, what he's ultimately setting them up for is that so too then there will be a traffic and an overlap between you and me and the Father via this Spirit that is supposed to come. 
And there's this really cool thing that John's doing as well here where just at the start of John 14, he's talking about this home that he's going to prepare for his disciples where the Father is. And then they say, Have you not, where, where is the Father? How can we see him? And he says, can you not see that his home is in me and mine is in him? And this language of home and dwelling begins to overlap. And this calls back to John 1 when John 1 says that Jesus came and he, the word came and it tabernacled. It made a home in which the presence of God was able to live and thrive on earth. And so John is wanting us to see that there's this thing that is happening where we are going to become this temple and home. And if you read Paul, we see this fleshed out even more. And so Jesus takes this and he says, okay, if you can't believe it, believe it on the works. Believe it on the evidence of my life that is evidenced on the Spirit. And what I think he is wanting to say is also you need to understand in this moment that I cannot teach this to you by giving you a, like the ability to memorize some scripture and a dissertation. What we begin to see is this experience with the Holy Spirit reminds us, as James K. Smith would say, and we are what we worship, we are more than sticks with a brain, but we are meant to be experiential beings, fully integrated where we experience and feel and encounter things. And Christianity is meant to be more than a mental ascent of something that we sort of check off of a list, but core to the life of a Christian is meant to be the experience in the life of God, to encounter and to know the, resurrec the resurrected and risen Jesus. And that is a personal experience for all of us, and it is also a corporate experience. In these moments and spaces, as we gather, we encounter the risen Lord. And so you will find yourself, if you are in a missional space, or even in just a, a reflective space, where you go and you attempt to explain what Christianity is, and you will find yourself at some point that what you will have to just ultimately offer someone is I can't tell you everything, I can tell you a lot because I think about it, but what I can tell you is at some point I was encountered by the resurrected Jesus and my life has never looked the same. At that point, like that's all I can offer you, is I can say, I, I don't know. I tasted something that I had never tasted before. I'd been offered really cheap wine and then I tasted wine, what it was supposed to taste like, and I said, I can't go back. And I've given my whole life to it. And oftentimes people will look at you and go, okay, I respect that. Like, I, I get it. You can't go back because this life of a Christian is meant to be experiential. It's meant to be encountering. We're supposed to feel. And this is what the Holy Spirit does for us. This is why he's called wind and fire. It's not saying that the Holy Spirit is wind and fire. It's saying that the Holy Spirit is like wind and fire in that you do not see the wind, but you experience it and you feel it. Oftentimes with fire... We experience it and we feel it as much as we see it. You don't need to see it to experience it and to know where it's coming from. You feel it and you know it to be true because of your experience of it. This is what the Holy Spirit is inviting us into in this life of Jesus. And as this begins to happen, as we experience and understand the experiential nature of the Holy Spirit and the Christian experience... That same traffic and overlap between Jesus and the Father begins to happen within us. There's this traffic between heaven and earth. There's this overlap that begins to happen where we then carry that and experience it alongside of this. 
So let's talk about this for just a second. In our verse, or in our chapter, uh, it talked, uh, we, we read the verse where it talked about that as this happens, as you begin to understand who Jesus is, and as he goes to the Father, that you can ask anything in the name of the Father, and it will be given to you. This is another space where I think a lot of the things around uh, the Christian experience, as well as the charismatic and the Holy Spirit, can start to get convoluted and difficult, and, and there's a lot of hurt and pain. Dale Bruner, phenomenal theologian and New Testament scholar, says uh, uh, regularly in his different writings that like this is the one place in Scripture where he thinks Jesus is wrong. He's kind of saying it tongue-in-cheek. But he's saying, in my experience, it has to be wrong because I've sat with too many people that prayed and longed for and didn't get what they wanted. And somehow we have to reconcile that with this verse. But let me say this on that, and then I'm going to kind of move on. This is a total aside, but I, I didn't want us to read that verse this morning and not address this in the context of the Holy Spirit. When he's asking that, when he's saying that, when he's talking about you'll do greater things than I will, right? And then in that doing that, like, I'll do anything you ask as you go to the Father. What he's saying in that moment and in that space is that there is something that is going to happen where you and I will become one in the same way that the Father and I have become one. And the things that you begin to want and ask for will line up with what I want and what I will ask for. And so then this thing happens where what we start to see is that he says, if you pray in my name, that is meaning that if you pray in the way and the cause and in the mission of my name, of what I came to set out to do, when you align yourself with that in such a way that the Father can be glorified in the Son, that is that the, the Father can be revealed fully in Jesus, that is that the service of the gospel would be fulfilled in your prayers, then that Jesus longs to have fulfilled more than you, and he's already praying on your behalf through the Spirit. The Spirit's advocating for you, for these things to be true. Because what God longs for and what has been revealed in Jesus is that God longs for us to know him and to be near to him and to return to him. And he does not long to condemn us and to, to, to run us off, but he longs to love us and to care for us and, and to call us into more and deeper union with him. And so as we begin to live in this traffic between God and us, and we experience this by the power of the Holy Spirit, then what you see and know and understand is that you align with that and these things begin to happen. Warning for Jesus, that meant death on the cross. And he prayed and he asked, if this is not possible, if there's any other way, let it pass. But if it be for your will, then I'll, I'll do it. This also meant death for a lot of the disciples of Jesus. Paul will write about the thorn in his flesh that he cannot get rid of, though he has asked God, but for some reason he has seen fit. So what this means is that in some way, shape, or form, what God will do is he will meet us in our pain, sufferings, and difficulties and what he promises us is that it will not be wasted, but it will be used in the service of the gospel. And in that, our prayers will come true. I do not think that it means that if you just pray hard enough, you will win the championship, which is what I thought it meant when I was in high school. If I just didn't sin 
my basketball team was going to win the sectional championship and advance in the state tournament. I legitimately thought that. I blamed myself. I won't go into all the details, but I blamed myself for my sister losing the state championship in volleyball because I did things that weekend that I knew I wasn't supposed to. And I was like, well, I prayed to God that he would let her win, and they didn't win, so obviously it was because I sinned. It's not what he's talking about. It is not that if you just pray hard enough, you too can have a Bugatti in a private jet. Like, that's not... And it, and it come back even smaller, away from funny and the outlandish. But there really is a space where we start to operate that we think if we just live in the Holy Spirit enough that life will be butterflies and rainbows. And that we, we think that there's things that like, oh, well, like birth will just happen exactly the way it's supposed to. And that there will be no pain because that's the reverse of the curse. Like there's these things that these small ways that life will just happen like it's supposed to. The job I want will just happen like it's supposed to. School will just happen like it's supposed to. Because Jesus said if I pray in his name, he'll answer it. And that's just not exactly true in that way. I, we see that there is a suffering that exists in the way of Jesus sometimes. But what is true is that he will meet us in that pain and suffering and he will tend to us. Because one of the number one things we know about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is a comforter. He's one. So, so in, your, uh, in the passage we read today and, and on the one that was on the screen... This Greek word paraclete was translated as an advocate is one of the ways it gets translated. It literally means to the one who comes alongside. This is used in a lot of ways as kind of like a wilderness or journey guide is one way that we can see it. I want you to juxtapose that thought against what Paul was pushing back against Galatians a few weeks ago when I preached of the babysitter that made sure they got from point A to point B. And I said, that's not the Christian life that God intends for you. He does not intend for you to have a babysitter that makes sure you do exactly what the Father says. He longs for you to have one that comes alongside of you and takes you on a wild adventure and a life that is full of surprises. And that means if you have ever gone on an adventure guide in the woods, there is pain and suffering oftentimes involved in that. And there is discomfort. But most of the time, not every time, most of the time it's worth it in the end. I'm not a huge outdoors person, but I'm enough of an outdoors person to agree that there's beauty in the suffering that goes along with this. And so if you start to think of that, this is what the Holy Spirit is. Not only that, but the Holy Spirit is a true friend. The Holy Spirit is one that comes alongside and encourages and cares and comforts and gives us this ability to face grief and conviction and challenge. A true friend does not condemn. A true friend will correct, though. A true friend will sit and will challenge. A true friend knows when to be quiet. And a true friend knows when to speak. And you, if you are a good friend in return, you know when to listen and when to process. And this is our relationship with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a friend to us in a way that reveals to us the truth. Because it is also the spirit of truth. And it reveals to us the spirit of truth that is pointing us to in the primary mission of the Holy Spirit in John's gospel that we see in chapter 14 is to allow us to encounter the person of truth, which is Jesus Christ. And then it invites us into to experience that life is what I think John is saying. Experience that truth. And then that, to use societal terms that we currently find ourselves using, 
mean as a follower of Jesus, filled and compelled by the Holy Spirit, you are to live the truth of Jesus Christ in your life, not your own truth. It's a cute and clever saying, and I think there's truth to it, and I don't want to be like totally prerogative about it and, and demeaning. But the reality of it is, is you chose not to live your truth when you give your life to Jesus Christ. You chose to live the truth of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit does this. It unites you with this truth and existence of being, and it unites you to the heart of the Father, which is the substance and source of truth in Scripture. So the Father is the substance and source. Jesus is the person of truth. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth that allows you to be connected to that life and to experience that source and to live it out. And so Jesus then expects that that is to be true, that then his people are to be a praying and missional people. And so he longs for them to take this and to go run with it and to interact and to engage and to pray for the things that they need to pray for, to experience the things that they need to experience. And what he promises is that you will not be left on your own in those moments. That the Holy Spirit will be one that is alongside of you, carrying you, helping you along the way, fulfilling the things that have been promised. And so you see how this begins to fulfill the festival of Pentecost. This festival where it was a, a receiving of the gifts of God that promised that God would fulfill the things that he set them out on. And here's what I think happens. Is as Jesus expects us to do this, to be a praying and truth, a, a missionary group of people, the, tr the same thing begins to happen then. Is as we experience this, and as we know this to be true, just in the same way that no one has seen the Father, but anyone that has seen Jesus has seen the Father. The world cannot see this spirit of truth and cannot see Jesus in the same way that his disciples are sitting in that room. We cannot, our culture today, societally, we don't see the physical form of Jesus. But what we can see is a community of mutual self-giving love and individuals that live the fruit of the spirit out. And what we can see is a historical gospel that has been like tested over time and stood that test. And it's bared itself out to be true. And we can offer this as a missional group of people in such a way that we then live out that same calling as we take that on and that traffic exists and the truth begins to take evidence in our lives and we give ourselves to that life and truth of God and of Jesus. A waiting and watching world around us is able to then see who God is capable of being. If that life is one of legalism, of boredom, of white-knuckled Christianity where it's just kind of like, I'm just going to grip real tight and hold on and just do all the right things so that I can make it to the end and then maybe I'll make it to heaven. If that life is one of apathy and one of sort of laissez-faire, I kind of believe in God, but it doesn't really affect my life and change much. If these are the things that we think the truth of the gospel is, then the world around us is going to reject that wholeheartedly as they should. Because that is a, a life of Christianity that I want to reject. What I'm convinced of more and more that the longer I follow Jesus is that this really is true and that it really is the primary way to experience life's abundance and its richness. And that the Holy Spirit's space is to come alongside us in that and to lead us on that journey and that experience.
and that the church is meant to be one of excitement and of joy. And that means we are capable of grieving and sitting in heartache with one another and celebrating and rejoicing with one another. And there's a tension there that is only possible by allowing the Holy Spirit to fill us full so that we are in perfect traffic and, and, and conduits of receiving the truth of who God is and that that overlap of heaven and earth begins to exist within us in only a way that it can because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension into heaven and the giving of his Holy Spirit. We proclaim this every Sunday to be true. And what I'm imploring you on this Pentecost Sunday is to step into a life where it is true by the evidence of your works and the experience that you and those around you have because that's how Jesus knew it was true. Not because he said it in a creed every Sunday morning. They said creeds and recited prayers, don't get me wrong. But they did so to remind themselves to live it out in such a way that it was obvious to those around them. And I think as we do that, Christianity becomes something that is we can't go back on. We taste something that in the land of the living that is just beyond our understanding. We realize that this is too good to walk away from. We find ways to sorrow and to rejoice in that. And that's the call of this next several months of ordinary time. Is by allowing the power of the Holy Spirit to overwhelm us and to overcome us. That we find ourselves being brought into life and abiding into who God would long us to be. And we find that intimacy and that animation in the Spirit in us that is compelling us and moving us towards things that we cannot explain or understand. And that does not have to be just the miraculous. It's why we have coffee and intermission. We want more of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we think it happens in worship. We think it happens in prayer and in sermons. And we think it happens in conversations with people. We do not want to be a community that does prioritize gifting over faithful, just faithfulness to God and the formation of character and kindness and joy peace, that there's this thing that happens in in an ordinary way of living, that the Holy Spirit overwhelms us and invades us. And that is what we want to be and to push into as we live out this ordinary time. But it is nothing ordinary when you're on an adventure. Think of Mary Poppins. We just showed showed it to our boys. Like the Holy Spirit, Mary Poppins' moment where Bert, if you've ever seen it, there's the paintings on the sidewalk and they're asking what they're going to do for the day. And they said something about an ordinary walk in the park. And he said, with Mary Poppins, nothing is ordinary. And they jump into the pictures and they go on an adventure. I think this is what the Holy Spirit's inviting you to. That though it be and seem ordinary with the Holy Spirit, nothing is ordinary. Nothing is as it seems. And you're being invited to jump into it. Because the reality of it is we also have to pursue the Holy Spirit and make space. So as the band comes up, we're going to transition to our time of communion. And what I want to say is as we enter into this time of communion... You're going to come, you're going to take the bread as always, you're going to take the cup, you're going to hold on to those elements, you're going to go back to your seats, and I'll come up and I'll lead us in the reception of those elements all together so that we can take of one body and one cup together as one people, united in this Holy Spirit, connected as people that are connected to the Father, in oneness and in truth, in spirit and in truth, right? So we're going to take, and as we do that, What I want you to do as you come is to think of the prayer that the church has prayed for a long time, which is, come Holy Spirit. We sing oftentimes, and sometimes this weirds people out. We sing, we we welcome you here. 
You're welcomed here, Holy Spirit. And this is the beauty of who the Holy Spirit and of who God is, as we see this, is that in all of this, it's never going to be forced or coerced. There's this really beautiful Greek language in, the, in John 14. Our NIV translated it, said, if you love me. But the Greek actually says, when you love me. There's nothing about what Jesus is saying to those disciples in that moment that is predicated on, like, well, you have to do this first. What he's saying is, as you experience me, you will be compelled. And as you love me, these are the things you do. And remind you, he is talking to a group of people that he is very aware that in the next few hours will leave him completely abandoned and out on the lurch. Some will verbally reject him, and only a couple of the female disciples will be left sitting at his feet. The rest of them will all abandon him. And he's saying to them, I know that that's true. He knows that to be the case. And yet he's saying, when you love me, you will do these things and your life will look like the works of my life. There is never a command from Jesus. There is only ever gracious and beautiful invitation. And the Holy Spirit's the same way. The Spirit will not kick your doors down. The burning bush that we'll talk about in Exodus, off to the side. You can walk by it and miss it, but you have to create space. You have to slow down. You have to find yourself. So as you come and receive these elements and hold on to them, create space in this moment to open yourself up and ask the Holy Spirit to come. Come into your life. Come into this space. And he is good to do as he promises where two or more are gathered together. There he is also, and he will come into the space, and he will encounter us. And what we begin to have in these moments is an experience with the resurrected Jesus made possible through the gift and the power of the Holy Spirit that descends upon us again and again in these moments, which is why we think these moments matter. They're not unique. You don't have, it's not a magical incantation that makes this possible, but we just have found over time again and again that it's in these spaces that this is easier to access. And let it access you. Long to see it. Look for it. And then let that moment and in those spaces Begin to see the way the Holy Spirit works all throughout your life and day to day and thank the Holy Spirit for it. Look beyond it and say, maybe I'm not just gifted really well with being hospitable. Maybe that's the Holy Spirit's work in my life. Maybe I'm not just really calm in stressful situations. Maybe that's the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. As you understand who the Holy Spirit is and what he can and do, what he wants to do, you begin to see his work everywhere. And as you thank him and as you respond to it, it opens it up all the more. So come and receive the elements. Let them change you in this kind of way. Let them make you something that you are not capable of being without this death and resurrection of Jesus. And as you receive them, let them change, them, change you inside out. And let it become something that is a gift to the world around us. And let us pray together that the Holy Spirit would come and animate us and take us on a life of an adventure and joy and of excitement that God longs for us to partake in. And we do this, and we are nourished, and we are capable of this because of these gifts of Jesus Christ. So people of God, come and receive your gifts. Amen.